Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Good morning. I don't know. It's morning for us. It's morning for us. It, it may not be morning for you, but if it no. is, good, good morning. morning. <laughs> <laughs> and welcome to Historically Badass Broads, where we talk yeah. about historically badass broads. It's a fairly self-explanatory title, which is why we liked it. Um, yes. Uh, the the uh, writing team for that opening segment is on strike because of the <laughs> WGA. Otherwise, we would have had a more concise intro. Yeah, because we don't do this every single time. Because <laughs> usually it's really well executed. It's really well executed, yeah. Anyways, hey. Hello. <laughs> That's um, Chloe, and I'm Yeah, Laura. sorry. Yep. That's okay. <laughs> And we're doing it. We're doing the thing. We're doing we're the thing. Tell you about a lady. I don't know who it is. Mora does. I'm going to learn with you. We're going to find out stuff together. What an exciting, exciting venture. It truly is. Would you like to tell us who the lady of the month is? I would. And I'm going to preface this by saying um, we're going to dispel a lot of myths. Ooh. And I didn't know they were myths for a long time. <laughs> okay. But there's been a lot of really cool research um, by Dr. Amy Fuller, and I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. Mm-hmm. I first uh, heard about this woman, and I'm I'm kind of ashamed to say that this is how late I heard about her, but when I was at Lambda uh, <laughs> in... <laughs> The summer of 2015, and we would go to the Globe a lot to see a lot of shows because that was the point. And mm-hmm. um, we saw a production of something called The Heresy of Love by Helen Edmondson, and it featured this woman, um, and it, it really presented a very specific type of narrative, and I fully thought whoa what a harrowing story that's absolutely Mm. right Mm. um horrific what a fascinating woman and I never questioned anything about that Mm. I now have everything to question so we're gonna go back to the mid-17th century you ready yeah we're gonna talk about and I I don't speak Spanish well I apologize for my accent we're going to talk about a woman you may have heard of called Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz. Ah. Yeah. I have, actually. Yep. There you go. <laughs> she, okay, so we're going mid-17th century. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go to Mexico, what's now Mexico. And there was a little girl born Inez de Abaje. Ramirez de Santiana. Mm-hmm. I really tried. Um, near Mexico City. And because her father is Spanish and her mother is Mexican or was born in Mexico, mm-hmm. she's known as a criolla or like a creole is the same word that they would use for it. Hmm. What's interesting is that term really refers to people who were born like in Mexico, but they were mm-hmm. fully Spanish. Okay. So not what we would think of as like Creole, but that's what they, that was their interpretation of the word. Mm-hmm. She was the illegitimate child of Don Pedro Manuel 
and Doña Isabel Ramirez. Mm-hmm. And she was very wealthy and they were very wealthy. And there's a lot being made about her illegitimacy. But frankly, for the records, we don't have too much to talk about with it. But there's going to be a lot of interesting discussion. There was a man named Octavio Paz who wrote a book about her in like the 80s that has been responsible. Maybe it wasn't the 80s, whatever. It was in the 20th century. I think it was the 80s. Um, And it's been responsible for a lot of what we think about her. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is this is another type of story where we're going to talk a lot about like what people want her story to represent versus like what actually happened and what Mm -hmm. it meant to her. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that's really important. Um, So Octavio Paz was a, a Nobel Prize winning writer, um, really interesting guy, but kind of used what was available around him to interpret and to create a very specific narrative. But from mm. our understanding, she was born um, to an okay family and just like was immediately very, very brilliant. Um, apparently she learned how to read when she was three. She was like, absolutely like couldn't stop reading, super, super voracious with everything. And Mm -hmm. apparently she read every single one of her grandfather's books. Wow. And when she was younger, there's this story she tells of herself. So she ends up becoming a writer. So that's how we know some of this. And it's always Mm -hmm. important to remember that she herself is also trying to create a very specific narrative about her life. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. never forget that. But this is something that's oft repeated. And I think it's a, regardless of whether or not this is true, it says a lot about what she's saying about herself. Um, Mm -hmm. So she said that when she was six or seven, she wanted to learn more so badly that she begged her mom to let her dress up as a man and to let her go study at the Mexico university because only men were allowed there. Right. Um, So I think that's great. Um, That's badass. Yeah. And then when she was around eight years old, she went to Mexico to live with her maternal aunt and her aunt's husband. And from there, after like a couple of lessons in Latin, she was entirely fluent. Which, as someone who studied (laughs) Latin miserably for like eight years, I need you to know, I'm simultaneously impressed and angry. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah that sounds impossible everything about her sounds impossible mm. Aww, cool. she's amazing so Juana Inez yeah I, I think the it seems like Octavio Paz likes to assert that she was born in 1651 and that she was really illegitimate and they didn't even put on her birth record like mm. anything except that she was a daughter of the church and like mm-hmm. that's not necessarily true. And the reason why is because he says that, oh, she added the Juana when she, she's going to become a nun guys. Spoiler alert. Um, that's <laughs> sore. Sore is like sister. Um, Love. she like when she joined the convent, she added the Juana, but no, she doesn't say that about herself. So, um, I'm going to go from the record that she leaves about her life, which is what Dr. Amy Morgan says as well. She's like, well, let's think about what she's saying versus like, you found a girl born with the name Inez a couple years around the same time. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what's more likely? Um, so we know that once she was magically fluent in Latin, um, she wanted to read all of the philosophical and theological works in their original language. Um, <laughs> That's mm-hmm. so iconic. It's incredible. And again, this is a society where wealthier women were educated, but it was all for a purpose. It was like, so that mm. you could best have a salon or like some kind of yeah, great conversation converse. and right, be exactly. a great hostess. It wasn't yes. to further your mind. Um, mm. which becomes something Ooh. of a crusading cause for her, mm. um, which I love. Like learning for the sake of self-expression and expansion, right? Like Incredible. That's not something that was emphasized, especially for women. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she becomes really well-known as this like prodigy because of all of this, obviously, because it's insane. Also, she was said to be very beautiful. Of course. So it certainly helped. 
So when she was around 16, she's kind of living in the city. She's being, she's really well educated. And a lot of it seems to be self, not a lot of it. It seems to be self-motivated, but it seems to have also been supported by her family, which is very lovely. But, mm-hmm. you know, she wasn't really able to go like down the official routes of anything. Yeah. yeah. So she was presented to court when she was 16 mm-hmm. and she won the affections of the Vicerine. So of Mexico what? was set up. As what, like a, what was that? The, what's the word? A vicerine. Huh. Don't think I've ever heard that word before. Well, her husband's the viceroy, so she's the. That's kind of what the feminine version would be. Oh, like king and queen. Mm-hmm. Like roi and reine. In the way that one is the opposite, like the feminized version of the other. Yes. I'm like spelling. What's the spelling? So yeah, viceroy is R O Y V I C E R O Y, and vicerine is ren is V I C E R E I N E. Oh, so it is like king and queen at the end. Yeah. Okay. Cool. It's which is the point. It's it is the French, but the Latin Mm. with a V I C E is like Mm. meaning in. Like lieu of or in in the uh, yeah. in place oh, okay, of like okay, in, okay. yeah yeah Ooh, oh cool I pulled no, that that's... out of somewhere <laughs> that's but it's so like cool vice though. president like yeah, yeah. so that's they're ruling cool. they would rule like in the place of that person and so this is a representative yes. of the monarch in a territory so this mm-hmm. is the territory of Mexico so this is the viceroy and the vicerine of Mexico. That's of New really Spain, cool. excuse me. This is New Spain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. That's fascinating. So she gets kind of brought in front of the vicerine, Doña Lenore Carreto. She's mm-hmm. also a, um, a marchioness. Mm-hmm. So she's, or in Spanish, the Marquesa. Mm-hmm. And immediately the vicerine is like, you are cool. I want you to come here. So she lives at court. And becomes sort of an oddity. And the reason I'm going to bring that up is because it, she's this unbelievably intelligent woman. She's very beautiful and she's very mm-hmm. intelligent and she's very young. And that is a fun thing for people to have entertain them. Okay. So she becomes entertainment for everybody. Yes, but I do believe, and you'll see throughout the rest of her life with um, the Vicerine and then a later Vicerine, actually, um, Mm -hmm. they really love her. Like, there's a lot of protection of her and a lot of, like, affection. And she wrote a lot of poems about them. So we know that there was genuine friendship, or at least as close as you could get with, like, that big of a difference in social status. But we also know that, like, people wanted to hear the smart lady talk you know <laughs> like mm-hmm. yep i mean so she became like just really well known it, it wasn't just that she could speak and like write in latin and Nahuatl, which is one of the native languages in mexico she could i mean she was like a brilliant scientist and mathematician and like she could I mean, she could do anything it was really extraordinary um and when she was around 17, so she was like a, a lady in waiting, but also just like kind of there. And mm-hmm. she was producing her po- some of her po- early poetry and even little bits of theater. And they were very entertainment focused. They weren't like these great literary works. It was meant to be fun and interesting. And she's a 17 year old, 15 to 17 year old writing, right? So it's going to mm-hmm. be really interesting and really fun and very um, playful, which she was mm-hmm. extremely playful. Um, and so they're performing some of that. The nobles are entertained by her. And then, and this is what I think is interesting is this could be interpreted a couple of different ways, but around when she was 17, they had 40 members of the university of Mexico, the same place she wanted to go when she was like six or eight to get like dressed up as a boy. Mm -hmm. Um, they came to the court and they basically held like a inquisition of her, like a questioning of her on mathematics, philosophy, literature, history, and science. And she astounded every single one of them. So these 40 men are just like trying to prove her wrong. I'm assuming this is my interpretation. I mean, okay. 
these are academics in their field, right? And they think, oh, we're going to go talk to this woman who's supposed to be really smart, whatever. And they go and yeah. she's like, I know everything and I'm better than you. Yeah. Is my interpretation. But I hope that's what's happening. <laughs> but yeah. everyone was like, oh my God, she's amazing. And she was absolutely brilliant. Um, and so around the same time, she's like real pretty. <laughs> People want to marry her. And she's like, ooh, I don't know. And she sees pretty much one of the only paths forward for her that would allow for her to continue learning. I'm going to pull up something that I loved that she said. It was, um, oh God, it was hilarious. She said, given my opposition to the idea of marriage, joining a convent was the least shocking and most decent thing I could have chosen. (laughs) (laughs) So she chooses to join a convent, but she chooses to join quite an interesting convent okay (laughs) she joins a community of carmelites who are very strict these are Mm -hmm. strict like in the tradition of the desert like hermits literally that's where the word comes from okay they're mendicants they don't wear like they're known as like the discalced or discalced like Carmelites, which means they don't have any shoes. Like that's kind of the idea behind it, which I think they do have shoes. Anyway, it's like a, you're living in pure abject poverty. Okay. And you're meant to suffer because that is apparently holiness we'll get into that as we always do so she chooses she joined a really intense very enclosed monastery um and she only lasts a couple of months before she's like nah well i'm also curious if that type of environment would be supportive of her intellectual endeavors Mm. no <laughs> probably, not, probably not. No, I'm gonna go out on a, a not so intense one. No, no. Yeah. Okay. Great. 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 So, was it nearby? Like, what? Why? Yeah. Why it, and it was a very well known <laughs> convent. Um, but she was like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is way too severe. And so she goes yeah. back to court for like almost two years. Okay. And then, or maybe about a year or so. The dates are kind of, eh, you know, and. Mm-hmm. Right when she's about 20, she enters a different convent. And it's the convent of, um, it's a Hieronymite nun. They had a lot more kind of chill. Yeah, they're chill. How do I explain? They're very chill. Um, They're just more chill. (laughs) Yeah, they're based on like St. Jerome versus like Teresa of Avila and like all these crazy crazy intense people anyway um yeah so they (laughs) literally like i think they let you talk more (laughs) oh you can talk and they probably let you like eat more food than just like penitential things got it yeah yeah yeah. living the life living that that life she actually was so i'm gonna mention so she joins a convent and she's sets up her life in her cell when you think of a cell you think of like a jail cell. Yes. Not the case with this. Think of it more like a salon. <laughs> like a oh. like a salon. Like a she had like according paintings to her own and records. couches mm-hmm. and oh. And she was basically sponsored by what was akin to royalty, you know, the viceroy yeah. and vicerine. Like yeah. She had a lot of very wealthy oh, well, friends and people. Does that mean and... that she's the one who gets to live like that in the convent? Or does everybody in that convent get to live like that? Just more so She her, specifically she got to, but I think if you had the money, you could. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. She had, according to her own calculations, close to 4,000 books, which is the dream. <gasps> wow. It's the dream, isn't it? Wow. So she is a library. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. is the dream. I just, just want to <sighs> Yeah. So she says about herself, she wanted to become a nun because she wanted to have no fixed occupation, which might curtail my freedom to study. 
and because she didn't want to get married quite smart yeah oh it's brilliant yeah it makes sense it really makes sense totally i'm obsessed with her i'm always obsessed with them let's be frank but but you always have good reason to be thank you i mean that was kind of the point of this podcast is that (laughs) it was actually the exact point (laughs) there's just so many cool ladies (laughs) and they all deserve the the admiration they really do just like we need to talk about them more okay so we're she changed it. her name officially to Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz, which is most likely in reference to Sor Juana de la Cruz Vasquez Gutierrez, who was mm-hmm. a nun who let her, like, they let her preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. So she was like, I like you. I want to do that. Yeah. So she became really good friends with a lot of people in the church who supported her. She was just like, said to have one of the largest pri- her collection was one of the largest private libraries in the new world like mm. hands down she had musical and scientific instruments she was able to have a lot of contact with the scholars and the people in the court and there was like another savant who was like a like a child savant like her and they were really good friends and the marquis and yeah, the like viceroy and vicerine and they they loved her and when she started writing more, they were able to help her get her works published, especially in Spain. Mm-hmm. So she wrote in verse, she wrote poetry, she com- was commissioned to write things for religious services and state festivals and it just became this like really really amazing part of what is known as the Spanish Golden Age. Um And she's kind of occupying this interesting world between the Hispanic Baroque period and like colonial Mexican culture. So Mm -hmm. she's kind of seen as like the last of the Hispanic Baroque writers and the first of the like colonial Mexican writers. That's cool. Which is really interesting. So she's kind of like, she's writing with the most extraordinary references to, you know, the classical philosophical mythological biblical like every thing she knows which is everything you know she's writing (laughs) (laughs) moral things and satiric lyrics and Mm -hmm. religious ones and she's praising court figures and religious figures and she even wrote potentially like secular love songs and she wrote so many different things and that's not normal like normally they'd write like one type of thing Mm-hmm. She wrote every type of thing. She wrote like allegorical religious dramas and also like cloak and dagger plays. Like, yeah, you know, just like crazy variation. And she wrote carols that were sung in churches. And yeah, there's this like edition of her works that's more modern and it's said to run. It, it is like four volumes. That is so cool. It's insane. Prolific. Truly. So she wrote a lot of really cool poems. I want to read part of one to you. Ooh. Actually, I want want to read quite a few of them because I think they're amazing. Um, This one is called, I don't know what it's called in Spanish. I will be reading an English translation. I am so sorry. I did take Latin and French, but I didn't take Spanish, which in hindsight, We have a lot of questions. Okay. (laughs) Poem 146. In my pursuit world, why such diligence? What my offense when I am thus inclined, ensuring elegance affect my mind, not that my mind affect an elegance. I have no love of riches or finance, and thus do I most happily, I find, expend finances to enrich my mind and not mind expend upon finance. I worship beauty not, but vilify that spoil of time that mocks eternity, nor less deceitful treasures glorify, but hold foremost with greatest constancy, consuming all the vanity in life and not consuming life and vanity. Mm. I love, I also love the not valuing beauty when other people are like, "Mm, she's beautiful. I want to marry her. Truly. I'm a fan of that. One of her more famous satirical poems is known as you mulish men (laughs) i enjoyed that too much i'd like to read it to you 
I'd like to I... have that tattooed on me. Yes. <laughs> I but please, please, I insist. It clearly though, like the reason I I to me it's a bit long, but the reason I want to read the whole thing is because it's a something we're still struggling with, which mm-hmm. will incite rage in my soul. Already does. And B yep. clearly speaks to her own experiences and this kind of contradictory world that she lived in where she was this celebrated intellectual, but Mm -hmm. she always had to keep in mind what she was representing and what she was giving Mm -hmm. to the world. And we're going to get into that. So You Mulish Men, philosophical satire poem number 92. You mulish men accusing women without reason, not seeing you occasion the very wrong you blame. Since Mm -hmm. you with craving unsurpassed have sought for their disdain, why do you hope for their good works when you urge them on to ill? You assail all their resistance, then speaking seriously, you say it was frivolity, forgetting all your diligence. What most resembles the bravery of your mad opinion is the boy who summons the bogeyman and then cowers in fear of him. (laughs) You hope with mulish presumption to find the one you seek, for the one you court, Ateus, but possessing her, Lucretia. Whose humor could be odd than he who, lacking judgment himself, fogs up the mirror, then laments that it's not clear. Of their favor and their disdain, you hold the same condition, complaining if they treat you ill, mocking them if they love you well. A fair opinion no woman can win, no matter how discreet she is. If she won't admit you, she is mean, and if she does, she's frivolous. You're always so stubbornly mulish that using your unbalanced scale, you blame one woman for being cruel, the other one for being easy. For how can she be temperate when you are wooing after her, if her being mean offends you and her being easy maddens? Yet between the anger and the grief that your taste recounts, bless the woman who doesn't love you and go complain for all your worth. Your lover's grief gives wings to their liberties, yet after making them so bad, you hope to find them very good. Whose blame should be the greater in an ill-starred passion? She who begged for falls, or he who fallen begs her? Or who deserves more blame than both of them do ill? She who sins for pay, or he who pays for sin? So why are you so afraid of the blame that is your own? Love them just as you have made them, or make them as you seek to find. Just stop your soliciting, and then... With all the more reason, you may denounce the infatuation of the woman who comes to beg for you. With all these arms, then, I have proved that what you wield is arrogance. For in your promises and your demands, you join up devil, flesh, and world. Heck yeah. Yep. Still true. (laughs) (laughs) Damn. (laughs) Just. Well. Not one thing has changed, apparently. Nope. <laughs> love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love how no one has learned anything throughout the entirety of history. I really, I do love that. That That's great. Mm. Mm-hmm. Heavy sarcasm. Sometimes yeah. my sarcasm doesn't sound like sarcasm, so I, I felt in that moment <laughs> a clarification no, was was due. I think we can all tell. It was good. It was very good. Screams <laughs> 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 and rage. So something interesting that happens is she, there's a lot being said about the eventual end of her career. We're going to get to that. Mm. She talks about it, what basically is being said is that this is the time later time of the continuing Spanish inquisition and the Inquisition is also a form of censorship and kind of keeping things the way that they, quote, should be. Right. Um, she says very clearly a lot of things that, if read out of context, would cause some to be concerned about her potential for attack from the Inquisition. One of the things is that she actually writes a poem in which she compares Jesus to Narcissus, but it's Mm. not in the self-love. What she's comparing and what she's including is this like full obsession and love for like a reflection of things. And that is the reflection of Jesus's love for people, not Mm -hmm. 
Narcissus's love for himself. That's what mm-hmm. she's comparing. So a lot of these works were not vilified. And, and Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Angry. But something that happens is in... She wrote a letter that was actually published without her permission. Mm-hmm. Which usually, you know, goes over so well. Um... She was criticizing in 1690. So she's writing. I mean, we're talking about quite a period of time. She enters the convent in 1668. She's 20 years old. She's writing a ton of different plays and philosophical things and all the above. And they're all amazing. They're being published. She's becoming extremely famous in her own lifetime. Um, Mm -hmm. And so she wrote a letter a couple years before this, but it was published and it was criticizing a very famous sermon that was done by a Jesuit priest. And this letter ended up being attacked by a bishop, the Bishop of Puebla, who was supposedly a friend of hers. And he wrote this letter under a pseudonym of a female nun, like a nun. Mm Mm-hmm an assumed name. And he basically says to her like, Hey, you think, you know, so much, but like, you're still a woman. Mm -hmm. So like, what's the deal with that? And she's like, "Mm, mm Hmm. Interesting. And she ends up writing a response and this becomes one of the more well-known things that she's written. And it's called the Respuesta a Sor Filotea, which is like the response to the fake nun, Sor Filotea. Yeah. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. People call it the first feminist manifesto. We can't call it that, but whatever. It's an incredible work. And a lot of it is defending the education of women. And I think it's, it's extraordinarily important One of the things is that she's, like, she quotes um, St. Teresa of Avila, that one can perfectly well philosophize while cooking supper, Mm -hmm. which is basically saying, like, these aren't mutually exclusive rights for women. Um, And one of the things, I'm going to quote just a couple passages. It's a very long response. Um, Mm -hmm. I encourage you to read. If you read Spanish, please read it in the original. If you don't, like me, they have great Mm -hmm. translations. Mm -hmm. And I I love it. So she talks about a professor of the scripture, Dr. Arc, um, or Arce, which is funny. A-R-C-E, but anyway. Got it. (laughs) He's saying, she's and what she's doing, this is basically a treatise on whether or not we should be educating women. It's really incredible. So mm-hmm. she says, the venerable Dr. Ark, I'm going to say, worthy professor of scripture known for his virtue and learning in his, for the scholar of the Bible, raises this question. Is it permissible for women to apply themselves to the study and indeed the interpretation of the Holy Bible? And in opposition, he presents the verdicts passed by many saints, particularly the words of Paul the Apostle, quote, let women keep silent in the churches for it is not permitted them to speak, etc." Ark then presents differing verdicts, including this passage addressed to Titus again spoken by the apostle, quote, the aged woman in like manner in holy attire teaching well, end quote. And he gives other interpretations from the fathers of the church. He at last resolves in his prudent way that women are not allowed to lecture publicly in the universities or to preach from the pulpits, but that studying, writing, and teaching privately is not only permitted, but most beneficial and useful to them. 
Clearly, of course, he does not mean by this that all women should do so, but only those whom God may have seen fit to endow with special virtue and prudence, and who are very mature and erudite, and possess the necessary talents and requirements for such an occupation. And so just is this distinction that not only women who are held to be so incompetent, but also men who simply because they are men think themselves wise are to be prohibited from the interpretation of the sacred word, save when they are the most learned, virtuous, of amenable intellect and inclined to the good. She goes on to say, And so men are not content until for the sake of saying what no one has before them has said they speak heresy. Of such men as these, the Holy Spirit says, for wisdom will not enter into a malicious soul. For them, more harm is worked by knowledge than by ignorance. A wit once observed that he who knows no Latin is not an utter fool, but he who does know it has met the prerequisites. And I might add that he has made a perfect fool, if foolishness can attain perfection, by having studied his bit of philosophy and theology and by knowing something of languages. For with that, he can be foolish in several sciences and tongues. A great fool cannot be contained in his mother tongue alone. To such men, I repeat, mm. study <laughs> does harm, because it is like putting a sword in the hands of a madman. Though the sword be the noblest of instruments for defense, in his hands, it becomes his own death and that of many others. <laughs> and she says later too, and in truth, the apostle said this about, you know, women being silent and all the above, said this not to women, but to men. And the let them keep silence was meant not only for women, but for all those who are not very competent. Obsessed. Obsessed. And then she later goes to have a really important conversation. And again, this is something that we still struggle with in our world. What happens when we limit the instruction of everyone to men is abuse of power and a change in dynamic structure. So Mm -hmm. when you don't allow women to teach, but you do allow some education, the only person they're able to learn from then is a man. Right. And you don't want to leave those two alone together because bad things happen sometimes. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey. she, she then says, oh, how many abuses would be avoided in our land if the older woman were as well instructed and knew how to mm-hmm. teach as is commanded by St. Paul and St. Jerome. Ay, ay, ay. Instead, for lack of such learning and through the extreme feebleness in which they are determined to maintain our poor woman, if any parents then wish to give their daughters more extensive Christian instruction than is usual, necessity and the lack of learned older women oblige them to employ men as instructors to teach reading and writing, numbers and music, and other skills. This Mm -hmm. leads to considerable harm, which occurs every day in doleful instances of these unsuitable associations. For the immediacy of such contact and the passage of time all too frequently allow what seem to be impossible to be accomplished quite easily. For this reason, many parents prefer to let their daughters remain uncivilized and untutored rather than risk exposing them to such notorious peril as this familiarity with men. Yet all this could be avoided if there were old women of sound education, as St. Paul desires, so that instruction could be passed from the old to the young, just as is done with sewing and all the customary skills. For what impropriety can there be if an older woman learned in letters and holy conversation and customs should have in her charge the education of young maids? Wow. Yeah. That is, that's something I've never uh, thought about before. It's so true though. Yeah, but the idea that parents maybe even wanted to educate their daughters, but were afraid. Mm Mm-hmm of the teachers is something I've never wow that's a little mind-blowing I know all right I'm just gonna sit here and mull that over I'd like to read more from this passage passage if that's okay please do she says better so than to let these young women go to perdition either for lack of any Christian teaching or because because one tries to impart it through such dangerous means as male teachers For if there were no greater risk than the simple indecency of seating a completely unknown man at the side of a bashful woman who blushes if her own father should look her straight in the face, allowing him to address her with household familiarity and to speak to her with intimate authority, even so, the modesty demanded an interchange with men and in conversation with them 
gives sufficient cause to forbid this. Indeed, I do not see how the custom of men as teachers of women can be without its dangers, save only in the strict tribunal of the confessional, or the distant, distant teachings of the pulpit, or the remote wisdom of books, but never in the repeated handling that occurs in such immediate and tarnishing contact. And everyone knows this to be true. Nevertheless, it is permitted for no better reason than the lack of learned older women. Therefore, it does great harm not to have them. This point should be taken into account by those who tied to the quote, let women keep silence in the churches, end quote, curse the idea that women should acquire knowledge and teach as if it were not the apostle himself who described them, quote, teaching well. Furthermore, that prohibition applied to the case related by Eusebius, to wit, that in the early church, women were set to teaching each other Christian doctrine in the temples. The murmur of their voices caused confusion. And when the, basically she goes on to say the murmur of their voice, Eusebius is like, mm, it confused people that women were speaking. She's like, mm -hmm. but that wasn't the point of that passage. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That wasn't the point of what they were saying. Right. Um, so she goes on and on, and I think it's really extraordinary. Um, and so this becomes a really famous kind of response and it's well published. Mm -hmm. And from this, we end up getting the interpretations that the rest of her life is terrible. And I don't think we can say that. So there's an interpretation that from then she gets censured by the inquisition and they tell her to shut up and go to her place and yada, 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 yada. But none of her works would have been able to have been published mm -hmm. had they ruled that way. Indeed, they have the stamp of the Inquisition on them, which people who don't know anything about the Inquisition thinks that means that they've been censured, but instead means that they've been approved. Mm -hmm. So what ends up happening is she starts writing kind of her story of her life. And I think she sees something that happens with a lot of very famous men in the church and women in the church as well. They start to see the importance of controlling their own narrative and she starts taking up that mantle. So, you know, there's only so much she can say about herself um, through her writings. And she said quite a bit. I mean, it's incredible. I'm, I really encourage everyone to read as much as possible. Mm -hmm. But what she ends up doing is writing something called a profession of the faith. Okay. And this is something that she uses begin portraying herself as worthy of sainthood. And that's really mm. important. So mm. because mm. of her fame, she starts wanting to be, you know, interpreted in this way. And right. so she starts like taking up that cause. And because yeah. she's smart, she's like, this is good. I can use this to help bring myself closer to the highest form of, of saintliness and holiness. Right. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. This is a quote from um, Amy Fuller that I thought was really interesting. So she says, she ends up, so Sorana gives every single bit of her worldly possessions up. She donates all of her books and she dedicates her to charity. And this is something she writes about a lot, which is like, if you were really doing it because you felt horrible about everything you'd ever written and you were repenting, you wouldn't be writing mm -hmm. about it. But this is what... Um, mm -hmm. Amy says, she says, in actuality, though, this turning point in her life, the donating of all the books and the changing of her writing, presented yeah. by so many as a persecution, was integral to the image that Sor Juana herself wished to portray. Within her own lifetime, two out of three volumes of her complete works were published, and she even edited some of the later editions. The final, yeah, the final installment was published five years after her death, and like the other volumes, was reprinted several times. Each volume appears to present a carefully constructed image of Sor Juana, tracing her career from court favorite to nun to saintly exemplar, with her mm -hmm. works reflecting this progression. And this posthumous volume, we find her first biography, which is written based on what she said. Quote, this version of her life draws upon the well-established narrative of the saint who, having gained fame and fortune, decides to give it all up for a life devoted to Christ. End quote. So that's why it's really important to see the profession of the faith, which is not evidence of her persecution, but is instead evidence of her understanding the importance of presenting herself as the most pious and the most yeah. saintly. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. 
so calculated yeah. in such a fun Very. way. <laughs> so, and this is something Amy says as well, which I love. She says, it, it would seem that her image was fairly contrived. However, the fascinating thing is that to a certain extent, it seems to have been created by herself. Yeah. So agency. Purposeful. Yeah. So. She was smart enough. I assume that everything she did was purposeful. Yeah. And so it seems like the archbishop is like, women shouldn't talk and blah, blah, blah. And so it's people interpret this as her stopping to write because she doesn't want to be officially censured or anything else. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. we do see some evidence of her agreeing to undergo penance. But again, the way it's presented and the way she signs her like document and her penitential is she signs it with I, the worst of all women. It's, it's a self penitential description Mm. of her faults so that everyone can really celebrate her. Mm -hmm. Like everything good about her. Mm -hmm. And so everything that we see from this later part of her life, the way it's interpreted is something that Amy Fuller really brought to my attention. And it's something that I find really interesting and it applies to so many different women. It's this idea that, and I'm I'm just going to quote her actually, because I think she says so clearly what I'm, I feel so strongly, but have never been able to articulate fully is that she says, quote, despite this, despite Sorhana shaping her own image, um, people, including scholars, have preferred to regurgitate the same old cliched narrative of female victimhood about someone who was actually incredibly successful. So why have these myths been created? It's difficult to say. Perhaps the fact that women are still struggling against sexism today makes it hard to believe that powerful female figures could have flourished in the past. Maybe the history and conventions of the day have simply bis- been misunderstood. It seems that we must believe that a woman suffered in order for her to be awarded iconic status. But Mm. this means we are killing heroines rather than celebrating their achievements. Why is the only acceptable strong female character one who has been recast as a victim? Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. Great point. Ooh, that got me. Yeah, great point. And my first introduction to Sorhana was in The Heresy of Love, where she's cut her own face and self-flagellating and starving herself to death and has been so censured that she's a shell of the woman she once was. It's, that's not what happened. Yeah. But this image is what has stuck. This is the image that has become so important. Sor Juana is on the 200 peso bill. She is this extraordinary figure in the Mexican national identity. And that's not to take away from that. But I love what Dr. Fuller was saying about why, why can't we just celebrate her for being yes. such a badass? Why does she have to be oh, turned cool. into yeah. a victim for us right. to celebrate her icon, like her iconography? Yeah. Yeah. And that's not to say that that isn't what was happening to other women. Of course it was. But mm-hmm. in this particular case, the evidence had to be manipulated to find that angle. It's not mm-hmm. what she was saying about herself either. Right. So I find that really, really important and really vital. Um, so a couple years later, um, she there's a horrible flood that um, hits... Ciudad Mexico, which is the city of Mexico. And in around the same year, there was famine the next year. And it seems as though this is all leading to a really horrific outbreak of the plague in 1695. Hmm. And she insists upon looking after her six sisters. And this is something we know is written about her by people Again, mm-hmm. is this like a bid for saintliness? Or, I mean, we could, I'm sure there are many motivations. She loved her sisters and wanted to care for them, but also like, what a, what a self-sacrificing thing to do. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to be said about it. Mm-hmm. And she contracts the plague. And unfortunately, she dies on the 17th of April in 1695. She's 46 years old. The plague? The plague. Darn. I know. <laughs> 
the Gosh, plague. Darn it. I know. <laughs> not the plague. The plague. Oh, that's not a fun way to go. No. And so, <sighs> but she has lived on. She is this icon. Her, where yeah, she I mean, she, her, she succeeded. She did. She did. She's not a saint, though. It feels it feels like she holds a similar space, if that makes sense, though. I don't disagree. Yeah. I wonder, I'm sure there is a movement to make her a saint. That takes literally hundreds of years sometimes. Right. Unless you're a former old white pope who defended pedophiles, in which case it happens right away. Ooh, sorry, too soon? Um, I'm too angry. Um. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, spicy. Some, some feelings. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. I yeah. remember no, I remember in another episode you said it takes literally centuries. Yeah. Again. Unless you're an old white dude who protects pedophiles in the church. Yeah, I do feel like I do feel like the decision could be made a bit faster, but who am I to know? I'm just a little lady. Just a little girl. Mm. I don't have a big enough brain for these no, things. We're, yeah. we're too dumb and emotional. I'm too small. Yeah. <laughs> You're literally the tallest person. I know. <laughs> so uh, for the listener, uh, depending on what metric system you use, I'm I'm 5'11". She's so I, I don't, tall, guys. I don't feel like that would have landed if people didn't know. I, I would like to take five seconds to say that i don't think of myself as tall which i know is alarming to people truly because you're so tall i know i know and truly for the past like two months of my life i've been encountering lots of new people and it's like the only thing people say to me and i'm surprised every time i'm like why are we talking about this i'm the height that i am very tall whatever maybe it's them trying to get you to like embrace it i think that's what it is no 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 it's like people who don't know me being like wow you're like really tall or like (laughs) this is a tangent but one time speaking of what what was it again what type of men in the poem mulish mulish men speaking of (laughs) mulish men there was a, a guy who came up to me at a bar i'm over 21 for the listener Oh my god! Uh, <laughs> I don't know. We we have children on here, but a guy came up to me at a bar and he said, "Has anyone ever told you you're like really tall before?" Really and I said, constantly. "I said yes." Did you think you'd be the first? And yes. So taken aback, but I was like, "All right, goodbye, little man." Did he? I literally love that. But it's Farewell. so true. Like, did he think that would be the way? I think he, he was, was the only one who noticed. Her. That I wasn't just like, haha, yeah. Or like, am I? I didn't realize. Yeah, he was like, oh, she felt like talking back. That's weird that she thought she had enough agency to Mm. not like what I said. Mm -hmm. Anyways, that was a small little tangent. Um, Back to the woman of the hour, however. (laughs) I just wanted to say (laughs) the convent where she lived is now a university. Mm. and she like is still given this incredible feminist edge which she wouldn't have identified with that's obviously a term that we can't ascribe to her but we can see like the prototypes of like well why aren't we equal like we were all created by god Mm. which is how kind of you know they all thought of it all Mm -hmm. and you know, I mean, she also became a really important part of the very specific, like, religious Mexican identity because yeah. she wrote in Nahuatl and, and Spanish. So mm-hmm. she's writing in both an indigenous language, but also a Mexican la- language. And it's kind of bringing the two together. And because of that, they actually end up putting her in the same categories, like Frida Kahlo. Um, and they both have like an altar at the university of her cloister, which is literally named the university of the cloister of Sor Juana. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of not worshiping both, but like giving them both um, 
that respect. Um, and I think what's really interesting is I love this, uh, Louis Felipe Fabre. He's talking about people like, um, Octavio Paz who are saying that like, they're specifically trying to interpret her as this like other or abnormal woman, instead of saying that like, she was just a really complex figure. So I think what we're starting to see moving forward away from Octavio Paz is this idea of her as a shockingly multifaceted individual, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like a human being. Um, yeah. You know how people have different facets? Mm-hmm. They're allowing her to have that to a degree. That's unbelievable. It's really nice. So we have some really cool like portraits of her that we'll be posting that were like painted during her lifetime. So we can see what she looked like. There are some really cool, there's a manuscript that she signed in in her profession, which I think is so dramatic. She signs it in her own blood. I'm like, you are a queen. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I love it. I love the drama. Um, So of course that like, if you want to interpret that to like a really dramatic, whatever, but she literally was like, this looks really good. (laughs) <laughs> that's gonna be a good story <laughs> yeah that's gonna be good they're gonna like that they're gonna they're gonna enjoy that one they're gonna love that <laughs> and so she and her works were preserved by her original friend the vicerine leonore had i think mm-hmm. either passed away by that point and also her husband was no longer the vicerine he had been brought back to spain and they had a new one but she was friends with the new vicerine and she what was her name Maria Luisa. And she ended up um, preserving her works and helping to keep them published and alive in the publishing world. And so she kind of disappeared in some fame. Like she didn't, she wasn't like perfectly famous from her death to now, but it's definitely come back. And what she's represented for Mexico is like a distinctly kind of criollo identity that was so specific to her age, but also is quite a nationalizing one. So Mm. she has certainly left her mark. I love reading. She wrote these like kind of erotic love poems and she wrote all sorts of incredible things, but I think it's really awesome that we're able to write, um, and to think about her complex kind of legacy and how she was trying to leave it versus how it was interpreted. And mm-hmm. I will note interpreted by men. <laughs> hmm. Of course, um, of course. But, you know, she does have a philanthropy that's a philanthropic organization, a couple that are named after her. And she did leave this great legacy of like, educate the ladies, you know? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think it's just... You know, I think she has served as an inspiration for a lot of people and hopefully will continue to do so. I think she's just Mm. so cool. But I love the idea that she can be cool for the sake of just being cool. Yeah. Not necessarily because she suffered so severely, which it could have been easy. Yeah, but exactly. It was just like, Mm -hmm. let's just give her that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz. Please read literally everything you can on her. She's so freaking cool. I'm excited to post about her. <laughs> do we have any pictures of the of the school too? Yeah, we do. Oh, and by the way, guess what they called her? The people in Spain called her the Tenth Muse. Ooh, yeah, that's a cool title. I know, right? Sorry, I totally forgot about that. But is that so cool? That's like in her fun. own lifetime, I think she was nicknamed that. Which is just really, great. yeah. Oh, that's cool. So she got mm-hmm. to hear it. I believe because so. a lot of this stuff, you know, she doesn't get to know. I think she would have been really pissed off with how she might be remembered now. Oh, great! <laughs> but I think how she was remembered and thought of back then, she would have like loved and supported. So oh, I guess okay, there's that. <laughs> yeah, it's usually the reverse, isn't it? <laughs> I know. I know. Such a lie. Hey, maybe we'll fix that single-handedly <laughs> now <Yeah. laughs> definitely all right well 
Another month, another lady. Thank you for listening. Like and subscribe and rate and review, right? True. Yeah, we never say that, but we It should. does help, though. It does. We appreciate it. We really do. And again, we are shocked every time to know how many of you there are, but we love that you're there. We appreciate you. Thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying. Let us know if you are or are not. <laughs> Actually, maybe not. I'm quite fragile. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we'll see you in a month. I hate month, saying that because we don't see anyone. I hate it. We'll talk. We'll you'll you'll listen. hear us in a month. You'll hear us in a month. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.